Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former MLB Executive of the Year and current MLB radio analyst Jim Bowden. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today we've got a guy that traded for me traded me, sent me down, signed me to my first multi-year contract in the big leagues, former general manager, Jim Bowden, JB, what's going on? Well, Brad, I got to tell you, one of my favorite trades, and it was my second big trade as a, as a young GM, was picking you up from the Seattle Mariners in a deal I made with Woody Woodward, and I got to tell you, I was really pumped up because I knew the potential that you had. In terms of being, a, at that time, I thought a 15-20 home run second baseman. Did, didn't know it would be much more than that. But potential gold glove second baseman, great range to your left. Uh, Eric Hansen came in the deal, a guy that had won 18 games uh, for Seattle. And uh, certainly we had to give up something to make a deal of that magnitude. We traded uh, catcher Dan Wilson for you. But at the end of the day, that was a huge trade for us back then. And for me as a young GM, you know, I, I got out of that massage, and I, I was pretty pumped up when that deal was finally uh, culminated with Woody. Yeah, that was that was a that was an interesting time. You know, I remember that phone call because I, Lou and myself and and uh, Seattle went back and forth, and by the end of that year, though, the ninety three year, Lou, uh, and for those that don't know, it's Lou Pinella was my manager in Seattle. We were on great terms. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm in Hawaii. I get a phone call. You've been traded to the Reds. Next thing you know, I'm talking to Davey Johnson, and, and I'm off to Cincinnati. And it ended up being a real uh, fun time for me in my career. But we'll get to that a little bit later. I want to talk about Jim Bowden. And I want to go back to the beginning. Uh, where did it all start for a young Jim Bowden? Where did you formulate this whole thing? As a kid coming up, uh, I know you started in the Pirates organization. Um, how did you get into this game? Yeah, so it was kind of interesting. So when I was a little kid, uh, one of my fun experiences with my dad was sitting on his lap and making baseball trades for my home team, which was the Boston Red Sox. And it was one of my great fun moments with my dad is like sitting on his lap going, now, would you trade this guy for that guy? And as a little kid, it was like oh, a great father-son moment, right? And, and then all of a sudden, two of my favorite players get traded, Reggie Smith and Ken Harrelson, and I get all upset as a little kid. But I really wanted to be the guy that made trades. And back then, Dick O'Connell was the GM of the Red Sox. I would ride my bike uh, past his house um, to see you know, where he was living. And I'm like, I want to be that. And my dad said to me, he said, you're never going to be a GM of a Major League Baseball team. You're not going to play in the big leagues. You're not going to have any contacts. This is not going to happen. But why don't you put your sights on something more realistic? You're not going to be able to play. You're not good enough. But why don't you try to be the play-by-play announcer? Try to be a broadcaster. So that was kind of the advice that my dad had. So I actually went to college with the idea of, you know, maybe I can do play-by-play or get into broadcasting and get connected with baseball that way. So I go to Rollins College, um, and then we're in the fall, and and all of a sudden I'm friends with this one other kid who's, you know, he's a baseball fan. But we had, like, no baseball fans on our floor except me and that 
kids. So we're sitting there and we're watching the playoffs. And, and then uh, I go down the next week to watch the World Series. It's the Pirates against the Orioles. And I'm like, hey, where's that kid uh, Squire? Anybody know? And they say, yeah, look at the first base dugout. He's in the front row. I said, wow, really? How'd he get those tickets? Oh, you didn't know? His dad owned the Pirates. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, anyway, his dad and I became good friends because, you know, I was Squire and I, the only two who liked baseball. So I got to go to the World Series. I got to go to the winter meetings. I got to be connected. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe someday I'll be play-by-play announcer for the Pirates. Um, and so as my career went on, uh, I, I graduated college. I sent out my resume and my tape to 200 places. I got 200 reject letters, and I put them all on my wall. I had wallpaper my wall with these reject letters. Seven months later, Dan Galbraith Squire's dad called me and said, uh, your job search isn't going so good, is it? I said, no. He said, well, I got an idea. Why don't you come work for the Pirates in media relations, and maybe you can make contacts with the local media here, and it might lead to something. So I'm like, all right, that'll work. So I go to work, and then uh, I'm there about a year, and then they sell the team. The new owners come in, and they fire everyone except three people, and I was one of the three people they kept. Um, And then the new owner came in and said, hey, you know, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a GM someday. And he said, well, I'm going to train to be president. I said, I don't want to be president. He said, why not? I said, because I want to make the trades. I want to build teams. He laughed. He said, all right, do me a favor. Redo these offices, computerize it, put in a phone system. You know, if you can do all that in the next three years, I'll let you go to baseball operations in an entry-level position. Well, I got everything done in five months instead of three years. And I went to him. I said, it's done. And he said, all right. So he walked me over to baseball operations, and I started an entry-level position. And a few years later, I became GM of a baseball team. Well, I mean, that's fascinating. It's just a different side of the game and, and, and I'm one that's that I love because it's not talked about that often, how, how general managers – you hear about general managers that have been in the game in some other capacity, whether it was a player, but, but the, the stories like yours are, are pretty rare. And, and being that I know you so well and man, we've been through a lot, not only me but my family with, with the Bowdens' uh, longstanding relationship – so, 92, you become the youngest general manager in Major League Baseball history. And it's not, you know, it is 92. It's not 2021. Nowadays, you've got a lot of hotshot young general managers. There's analytics. There's, you know, everything's data-based. And 92 was a different time. And you were kind of this, this hotshot coming in, young, uh, young guy, in kind of a, an atmosphere where it wasn't like that. Did, did the other general managers accept that, or was there some walls you had to knock down? Yeah, they uh, they hated me and laughed at me, and I had no idea how I could be a GM. You know, I had spent the, the 10 years prior, like I started when I was young, obviously, out of college, um, but I, I decided to get rid of my mouth and add a third year. So all I did was learn, and I was blessed because I was with a major league team, so all I learned was from managers, coaches, scouts, Development people, players. I sat on the big league field every day. I sat in the big league clubhouse every day. I sat in the manager's office. Chuck Tanner, he was my first, you know, real manager. Sat with him after every single game till like three in the morning. Like all I did was listen and learn from everybody in the sport. So I was really blessed. Now, when I got the opportunity, the people weren't used to young GMs. There was Dave Dombrowski and Andy McPhail. They were the two ahead of me. Um, 
but you know it was unique and i got to tell you my first gm meetings i didn't know what to do i dressed up in a suit and they all laughed at me cuz they were all in casual clothes cuz you know i didn't know how to go to the first meetings and the first thing i did was propose instant replay in 1992 and i got laughed out and uh they did a vote and i was the only one that voted for it laughed at and not today people look at it and go oh instant replay of course everybody wanted that yeah nobody wanted that so it was really hard cuz it was a fraternity and i would call and try and and try to talk trade early on and it was hard because nobody wanted this young kid out of nowhere to be a GM. They just, they, they was just not accepted, but I just grinded through and, and Brett, you know me, like I never had all the answers, but I was like, I'm going to surround myself with really smart people and I'm going to learn with everybody. But I was never afraid to hire smarter people around me, right? I hired your dad, Bob Boone, Davey Johnson, Jack McKeon, Bobby Valentine, like everywhere I looked, if you had won a World Series or you had won a championship somewhere in Major League Baseball as either a player or a manager or coach, guess what? I'm hiring you. If my owner can allow me to hire you, I'm hiring you because that we're going to win. We're going to find a way to win. So, And then, of course, my connection with you and your brothers was, of course, once I hired your dad, highly intelligent, highly analytical, loved the game, had great passion for it, talks about it 24-7. Uh, if someone throws a slider and was supposed to throw a backdoor fastball, he would just get so upset. And I, catch it doesn't block a ball or the mechanics are off. you know. And I just loved his passion, his work ethic, which is second to none, even to this day. But then, you know, I traded for you. I drafted Aaron and, and Matt, your brothers. I then, my funniest story ever, Brett, was trading you to Atlanta for Denny Nagel. Like, how do I trade Brett when I've got dad in the room? You know, I've got Aaron there. Like, how do you do that? But at the end of the day, your dad voted for the deal, too, because it was like, we needed a pitcher, which we ended up winning 96 games the next year. You had a chance to go to Atlanta and win a world championship. You got to play with Maddox and Glavin. You got to go to a really good spot for you. So it kind of worked for everybody. It was so bizarre. And by the way, your mom, she didn't talk to me for a year. But but was... you understood it. Aaron understood it. Sure. Your dad understood it. It's a tough business. It is what it is. Well, I remember that trade. And, and you're right. Dad was dad was with you in, uh, in the front office capacity. And yeah, but you know, it's those things. It's, it's moms don't understand that. Uh, it's, it's a business. And I knew I was coming off a pretty good year in Cincinnati and I knew it wasn't a, a knock on me. I was getting traded for Danny Nagel, you know, who was, who was going to be a number one for the Reds. And I was getting an opportunity and you mentioned it, the Maddox Smoltz collab. And I, I was excited. Like, I don't have to face those guys. And and you're right. I went to Atlanta. I got to go to my first World Series, and and there were no hard feelings for me. I looked at it as a new opportunity, and, and I think you know the same way I looked at it when I came to you from from the Seattle Mariners. But yeah, you had to deal with mom, and to this day she still laughs about it. Um, you come to Cincinnati though, and and I want to still talk about those early years. Not only are you coming in as the youngest GM ever. Um, but but you're coming to the Cincinnati Reds, you know, pretty pretty high profile franchise, and they're coming off you're two years off a world championship, and the real unique part about all this is your boss is Marge Shot. Give me a little bit about Marge. Yeah, it was a <laughs> challenge. There's no doubt. I mean, it was very bizarre. Like I would make a trade. I'll never forget. I had a agreement we're about to make where I was trading Hal Morris for a young Raul Mondesi before Mondesi became a star. 
and I went down and uh, to her office to get approval, and I had my normal like six pages of data on why I want to make the trade and why it makes sense and why it works. And she looked at me and said, "Honey, I can't trade Megan." I said, "What?" Hal's <laughs> wife, Megan. Did you see the gift that she gave me? Come over here, honey. I want to show you this gift. And she showed me, you know, this nice Christmas gift she had gotten from Megan Morris, Hal's wife. She goes, "You can't trade Hal. He can't go anywhere. No, no, can't trade Megan." True story. I mean, you can't do it. Then I'd walk into her office one day, and I'm sitting there talking to her. I get tapped on the shoulder. I turn around. It's a baby elephant. A baby elephant in her office that got through her office door uh, because, you know, she was a big contributor to the Cincinnati Zoo, and she loved animals. And so, you know, the animals would come in. Opening day, as you know, had the big elephants. But we had a baby elephant in there that I had to feed peanuts to. Like, are you kidding me? But I got to tell you, the one thing about Marge, and people can say what they want, when the going got tough – she stepped up. Yep. Like if you needed a piece at the deadline, I'll never forget, and you were there because it was 95. Uh, it was before you, won, before you won your first gold glove, but it was 95. And if you remember, we got to July, and we're in first place, but we needed starting pitching bad. And we had traded for Berber in Portugal, but we needed one more guy. And I went down, and I said, look, I know David Cohn's too expensive. He makes 5.7 back then. I said, and uh, Jim Abbott's out there, but he's got one arm. It's not going to work with the National League with the pitchers hitting. But David Wells, I think, is a good compromise. He's making $3 million a year. We've got to trade our first-round pick from a year ago to make it happen in C.J. Nikowski, but I really want to make this deal. And she said, well, honey, who's the best pitcher of the three? I said, David Cohn. She said, well, go get me David Cohn. Forget the money. Like what? I mean, this is a lady that charged her employees right. for, for for Dunkin' Donuts. I, I had to pay for pens because she would, you know, she would buy pens and then sell them to the employees for more than what she paid for them. So I got so excited, I ran down. I I, I picked up the phone. I I, uh, I called to make the David Cohn deal, and and I was told it was too late that George Steinbrenner had already traded him somewhere else. Um, so we ended up trading for David Wells anyway. But when the going got tough, and in 90, when we won the World Series, it was the Glenn Braggs, Billy Doran deal. We couldn't afford to do it, but she was like, yep, go, if it's going to give me a chance to win, go do it. And so, you know, it was it was interesting that way. And the funny part is when the world went against you, uh, she would sit there and support you at a high level. When the, When the world loved you, which, as you know, it, in baseball, it goes up and down that way. But we had won in 94 and 95, and I was getting free dinners all over the city. She hated me, wanted nothing to do with me. But, boy, if I had a bad year, oh, she loved me. So it was it was very interesting. And, of course, she was very colorful. And she was, you know, when people called her racist, I said, yeah. But, I mean, she was racist against everyone that wasn't a female Catholic woman. That, that was it. Those are the only people that she was against. Yeah, and it was my, you know, I came over there in my first experience. You remember she had the parties every year. I remember Larkin tapped me on the shoulder because I'm a young player pre-arbitration. And he says, hey, Booney, you want to get that multi-year deal? You might want to jump up on that elephant. <laughs> and and that was kind of the, that was kind of the world world of Marge. I said, yeah, but Bowden has nothing to do. He doesn't care if I ride the elephant. But, uh, you know, I, I get asked questions about Marge. What was it like? I think you hit it on the head perfectly. You know, as players, as the 25 guys in that clubhouse, all we want is is to know our owner and our general manager got our back. And and the first thing we we set out, you know, in the beginning in, of spring training is is we want to win. And Marge was like that. You know, you had to – she was pretty eccentric, and she liked to come down to batting practice and put 
some dead dog's hair in my back pocket. Give me a little tap on yep. the cheek. Go, hey, come on, honey. You got a couple hits in you tonight. You know, so there was that side of Marge. There was the side where I'd go to our old uh, hitting instructor, or I'm sorry, our, our clubhouse guy, Bernie. I'd say, Bernie, I need a dozen bats. Well, Marge wants you to, you know, turn in 12 crack bats to get your new bat. So she was like that. She was cheap as could be. But when it came time to win, uh, she wanted to go out and get those players. And and that's really, <laughs> as a player, that's the most important thing. So I, I thought that was good that you talked about that. Um, what's the toughest part about being a GM? Can, can you have friends? You know, everybody's going to get mad at you at a certain point you've got to make trades you've got to release people how is that just on a day-to-day basis walking around interacting with with the players you have in the field yeah you know what the the worst part of the job seriously is releasing a player or telling a player he was traded um because you release a player they do take it personally to this day players that i've released have come up to me and reminded me that i released them um it's the hardest part of the job. I mean, because a lot of times you're taking the person's dream away from them. You're telling them they, they're not good enough. They can't play. And that's their dream. That's all they want to do. And you're the guy taking it away. It's not an organization. It's not a group of evaluating people. It's no, he's the GM. It's him, period. Nobody else. And so that's hard. And at, telling a player to be traded, you know, everyone acted differently when you would trade them. You know, I tried to be honest and upfront with everyone, but at the end of the day, Players in general take it personally. You didn't when I traded you, but when I traded, for example, Deion Sanders, he cried and and, and was hurt. Um, so the next time I signed Deion, I gave him a no trade clause so I wouldn't trade him because I said, I'm not giving you the no trade clause. I'm giving it to myself because I know I'm going to trade you again if I have a chance to win because <laughs> I had traded him that right. year for Berber, Portugal, and Darren Lewis. But, yeah, that's, that's the hardest part. Um, in, in terms of the relationship parts, it's really hard – uh, John Scherholz was a Hall of Fame general manager, and I had gr- great respect. In, in my era, it was him and Pat Gillick that was this year, you know, this era is Andrew Friedman and Theo Epstein. But back then, it was Scherholz and Gillick. Um, and Scherholz really didn't go down to the clubhouse very much, didn't really go on the field very much, didn't want to have that relationship uh, with players because he really wanted to have a neutral uh, non-opinion of that. I, I kind of viewed it a little bit differently as I wanted to get to know the players because you win with people, not players. And I didn't mind having an emotional bias because I really wanted to know who wanted to be at the plate with the game on the line. Who's the guy that wanted to get that hit, you know? You and Barry Larkin. I mean, there's a few guys, Ryan Zimmerman in Washington. There's a few guys that they want to be up with the game on the line. They're going to deliver. And and so I felt that I really needed to know makeup and character. But to your point, um, yeah, it's 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 a like any strong leader, whether it's the president of the United States or a president of or CEO of a company, you're either hated or loved, and normally there's not much in the middle. To you listening out there on the Boone Podcast, Jim Bowden gave me my first lesson in negotiating. It was my negotiating 101. And you remember the story when I when I uh, flew into Cincinnati, I was getting my eyes checked, and I gave you a call, and. Uh, it was right before my first multi-year deal. And you said, uh, Booney, yeah, come on. I'm, I'm up in the office. Come on by. And we had been talking about signing a three or four year deal for months and months. And I was a young player and it was wearing on me. And you, t- you took me up in the office and, hey, how you doing? You know, I had to I test go. And, and uh, we sat down and we hammered out the deal. 
that we'd been talking about for, I don't know, had to be four or five months with my agent at the time, Michael Watkins. And I remember you looked at me when we agreed on everything and you go, wasn't that tough, was it? And you said, you know, and I said, yeah, but you were tough. You were tough. And you said, well, sometimes I didn't answer your phone calls on purpose because you had all the cards. And, and I remember you said something to me to the effect of, my job is to get you to counter your counter. How, how do you remember that story? Because I remember it was kind of my first light bulb moment when it came to negotiating big time contracts. Yeah, I mean, I think just from my perspective as a GM, you know, you always have these strong budgets ahead of you. And you sit in the seat and all you want to do is win. So your goal when you're signing all these players is, how do I get a player to sign for the least amount possible yet have it be market value where the player is happy where the number is? And so from my perspective, it was always a grind, but I also always felt it was important that the player walked away going, okay, that's a fair deal. That, that's going to work for both sides because that's really what it is. I don't ever want to beat a player because I learned that in my early days in Pittsburgh. You win a negotiation, that's fine. But you piss the player off, you're going to lose in the long run. You're not going to win. So the goal is how do I win? How do I have enough money to go get that pitcher or go get that shortstop or go get that Benito Santiago or Tony Fernandez? Or how do I get that extra piece? Because if I can save 500000 on this Boone trade, I can go get Tony Fernandez. Or I can go add another piece to my team. So that was always challenging. And, um, you know, you're such a competitor in everything that you do that, you know, it, it's tough to negotiate when you have, when you're going against, you know, an athlete like yourself that is a competitor that knows your value and more importantly knows how much better you are going to be. Like when you and I were doing those deals, Early on, you hadn't you hadn't been to an All Star game and won a Gold Glove yet, right? You did that, I believe. It was ninety eight was the first time you were All Star yep. Gold Glove, uh, mm-hmm. first of four Gold Gloves, if I'm not mistaken. But you and I both knew what you were gonna be, and so part of the thing you want to get paid for what you're gonna do, I'm trying to get you paid for what you've done, and then, and and that's kind of a little bit of a difference as well. So ninety nine, uh, you're the executive of the year. How much does that mean to you? It meant I made a good trade, even though your mom wouldn't talk to me. I did the right thing by trading near Atlanta. Denny Nagel, we had pitching. I I didn't have pitching around you enough, right? I mean, 94-95, we finished in first. That was great. That was exciting. We got the LCS in 95. Amazing, the Reds have never been back since. That is so sad to me. But, you know, 99 was fun, but it didn't didn't matter because we lost that one-game playoff to Al Leiter. And, um, you know... 96 wins was what it was. I, I get the award because 96 wins, small market, not a lot of money. You won anyway. Okay. But to me, you know, I just winning world championships is why you do the job, right? When you come short of that, I don't think individual awards mean anything myself. All right. Let's fast forward. Uh, you finish up. You go on to, to be the general manager uh, of the Washington Nationals. And you finish up in 2009. And nowadays, there's a lot of young Jim Bowdens out there, a lot of technical guys that study this. What you're seeing in the game now with all these young uh, GMs and, and the analytics, what you see on a day, day-to-day basis and data-based, uh, is the game better now? Or yeah, it's better now. But just remember, the guys that are winning world championships are using baseball minds to win with analytics. 
it's not analytics winning, right? If you, you want to go look at Dave Dombrowski's World Championship with him and Alex Cora in Boston, or if you want to go look at uh, last year's World Championship with Andrew Freeman and Dave Roberts, I mean, these organizations, they got really good baseball people making baseball decisions, but the analytics help you um, scientifically give you better facts. For example, uh, when I traded for you, one of the things I loved about you was your bat speed. One of the things I loved about you was the exit velocity off your bat, your barrel contact, the power that co- came out of your frame, which you had 24 homers for me the last year you were with me and ended up hitting 37, I believe, later on when you went to, to Seattle. And I think you had 35 plus twice after that. But the point is, is I knew that because eyeballs, you know, I could see coming off your bat. Our scouts could see it coming off your bat. But I couldn't prove it, right? I could, I could, we could just say it. Um, someone's jumps and angles in center field. We'd watch Andrew Jones. His jumps and angles were sick. He's the greatest center fielder defensively I've ever seen in my life, taking Without singles away in front of him. But, but, but I couldn't measure it. I, I could just tell you my eyeballs said he and Willie Mays were great. Finley was great. Jumps and angles. Like, I, we could say it, and I could pay scouts to tell me what they're seeing. But today, with these analytics – they tell you exactly what the exit velocity is, exactly what the barrel percentage is, exactly the the, uh, the runs above average that they save, the jumps, the leads, the range. They measure everything. So instead of asking a scout to tell me what he's seeing, we now have facts. So you don't make a mistake. Um, for example, Roberto Kelly. When I had, had traded, one of my worst trades was Paul O'Neill for Roberto Kelly. It was the first trade I ever made. And the first year, Roberto Kelly goes to the All-Star game for me. O'Neill doesn't for the Yankees. And I'm thinking, I won this deal. But when I got Roberto Kelly and I started watching with my own eyes, bad jumps, bad angles, couldn't hit the fastball inside. Like all of these things that my scouts told me that, that he could do that he couldn't do. And I I couldn't believe it. So the ball would be hit. It would be over the mound before Roberto Kelly would react. He couldn't play center field. So I ended up trading him for Deion Sanders, which worked out for me on that trade. But had I had analytics back then, I would have never made that trade because I would have known that my scouting reports were wrong because the science proves to me exactly what the jumps and angles are, where he can hit a ball, where he can hit a ball, what velocity he can hit, what rotation he can hit, what he can't hit. Like, I know everything now. I can sit there in my chair here at Miami Beach in my office, and I know well more about players today than I could then, because back then we were giving more opinions and facts. Now you get baseball people, and then you armor them with facts, and then watch out. You know, we watched the Rays' success, and Eric Neander has been one of the best young GMs in the game. And he goes and picks up Nick Anderson from the Marlins. Why? Unbelievable spin rate, unbelievable rotation, had no idea how to use his stuff at all. Zero. Because the Marlins weren't as advanced analytically as the Rays were. The Rays get him now. He's one of the best relievers in the sport. And just absolutely dominant. And knows how to use his stuff and can do it. So, you know, the game's changed a lot. I wish I could rewind and have all that armored with me along with the great minds that was working with me back then, it would have been way better. Um, In terms of all the young executives, there's a lot of smart people in the game, but let me tell you this. Those that are winning have a collaborative approach, and they're surrounded with strong scouting staff, strong analytics staff, strong developers, strong scouts, and they have a combination. All those teams that win have the full package. So baseball went through an area where, oh, hire young guys, hire analytics, run by analytics only. That hasn't won yet, okay? The people that have won 
have, have just added analytics to the baseball minds. And all you got to do is, is ask guys like Jim Leland or Bobby Cox or, or some of these great managers that are still around the game watching uh, how teams are winning. So it's been fun. It's different. But, Brett, I, I wish back then, if we had had this technology back then, imagine the decisions we would have made and the mistakes we could have avoided. It would have been a difference maker back then. And I think, too, and, and the reason I've always, you know, I've respected you a lot through the years because you mentioned earlier you never played. But but I felt like when I was talking to Jim Bowden, it's like you were the first guy that never played the game at a high level. But you talked to me. I, I could have a conversation with you and you could see it through a player's eyes better than any non-player I've ever I've ever been around. And I thought it was, you know, I'd come away from some of our conversations kind of laughing like that. I've never met a guy that hasn't been down here on a daily basis, grinding and out as a player. Talk to me like Jim just talked to me. And it was funny, but I was always enamored with it. Cause I'm like, how does he know? Cause still to this day, I can't talk to some players. They can't talk. Cause man, I, I I'm just not feeling you, you know, you, you don't know where I'm going with this, but you were always able to do that. And that, and that's a rare thing coming from uh, an executive it was just my whole career. I always thought it was great. And I'd always say, no. And to this day, I listen to you. I think you're one of the best analysts out there. Um, Thanks. I think, Brett, the key, as you know, is that when you're sitting there at 21 years old and you're around the batting cage and you stay around that same batting cage at, at four o'clock every single day your entire life for decades, you don't have to be that smart to really, if you're open-minded and you want to learn and you want to listen, then it's about knowledge. And I remember Ted Simmons telling me, the Hall of Fame Ted Simmons now, but I remember Ted Simmons when he was GM of the Pirates and he'd drive in on his motorcycle and put his helmet on Gene Donatelli's desk. I remember him sitting down with me and saying, hey, look, you could be a GM someday. Just understand this. It doesn't matter if you played or didn't play, but at the end of the day, you have to have the intellect, and the only way you're going to get the intellect is from the players and the scouts and the development people and the managers and the GMs. But if you sit there in the clubhouse and on the field every single day, you'll get the same knowledge the players get. Remember, the player's average career is going to be six years. You're going to be sitting there for decades. So you're going to have generational generational Hall of Fame guys talking to you every single day. You're going to be able to learn from everybody. Players have a window, and they're done. It could be 22 to 32, or maybe it's 24 to 35, or it could be 24 to 29, career over, or it could be one year and out. But in your role, you'll get to sit there every single day, and if you really want to be good and really want to learn, you can be as smart as any player is. When you talk about talking to players, you, you, you talk player language. That's what we understand. And if you can talk player language, you're going to get a player's ear. I think with the right. analytics – I think you're right. You need to have knowledge and and couple that with the analytics for the perfect storm. I don't think, you know, these players and you, you've signed enough, you've traded for enough, you know, all of us are different. You know, different guys have different hearts. There needs to, these managers today need to manage with their gut at nut crunching time at those big decision times. You can't just go with analytics because all of us are different. But I think it's, you know, what that, you know the whole thing that's is fascinating. That's a great point. I don't mean to inter- interrupt you, but I do want to go to that point because the great managers that are going to win today have the eyeball to in-game make the decisions. The analytics can prepare a manager to manage the game, 
And if everything went perfect, you could manage off those analytics. But the reality is the analytics aren't going to hold up on that particular day because the pitcher's slider may not be working that day. So even though the analytics say throw this guy a one-two slider, open him up with a backdoor slider, if the slider's not working, then you've got to go to plan B. And a manager may read that, okay, this pitcher can't go around the line at the third time. But if he's dominating the game and the stuff is still there, there are times where, you know what, i got to go against the analytics and my eyeballs say he's going to get through this next, this next inning or two. And they leave him in. And when you looked at when Alex Cora won his world championship for Boston, he went against a lot of the analytics that he was provided in making decisions and won. A.J. Hinch did the same thing when he won in Houston, and Dave Roberts did this past World Series go mm-hmm. against some analytics. And then there was Kevin Cash, who took out Blake Snell when he was pitching great because the analytics said to take him out. And quite frankly, to me, that'll be the worst mistake that Kevin Cash makes in his career because he should have trusted his eyeballs over the analytics. So the blend of that is just so important these days. And I think and I think what you're mentioning in the Kevin Cash situation, it for the first time kind of kind of put a bright light on analytics and and having some people go whoa maybe we need to reel this back a little bit i think it's good i think for anything it's 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 a good subject to debate but uh no this is this is all really interesting stuff so you finish your your gm man you've done it all at this point jim you've been on sunday night baseball you're calling games uh you got your show uh front office mlb network um how how have you enjoyed this this Sec, kind of second career for you. Yeah, I've loved it. You know, when I was preparing for the career after being a GM, because I knew there would be an expiration date, because every GM has, has an expiration date, I didn't think I'd be able to be a GM for 16 years. I was in the seat a long time, so I was very blessed that way. But I always knew it would expire. When it expired, I didn't want to be sitting behind home plate scouting somewhere, right? I didn't want to be a special assistant somewhere. Um, so life after, I prepared while I was a GM, both in Cincinnati and Washington. Um, I had a radio show, a TV show, and I wrote an article uh, at both places. And I did so because I knew the media is one of the avenues you go to, you know, or could go to post uh, GMing. And um, I love love the game, and I want to be around the game, and I want to be in touch with the game. But this is a, an avenue for me to do it. So, you know, as you know, I, I call games right now for ESPN Radio. I work for CBS Sports HQ, uh, where I do TV uh, analyst hits on a regular basis. I write for The Athletic. Uh, I have two radio shows on Sirius XM, uh, MLB Network Radio. I have the front office show, uh, as well as um, on the Fantasy Channel, I do an an NFL MLB show um, on the Fantasy Channel. So, you know, I'm everywhere. And the reason I love it is that every day I'm texting GMs or managers. Every day day of my life, uh, I go to the ballpark. Uh, interview players, talk to managers, um, because that's where you get the insight in. And what I can bring to the table is, you know, a lot of analysts do it from afar. I do it from within. For example, I wrote an article in The Athletic a week ago on the top 30 underrated prospects in baseball, one for each team that aren't going to show up on the top 100 list or the top 10 list that everybody writes. And I did that because I got so mad that no one understood what the Cubs got for Darvish or the Rays got for Snell. But when I do these lists, how do I get how did I get this list? How did I get the most undervalued prospect from each team? I went to each general manager, I went to each scouting director, I went to the guys that are watching these players every single day. Who's the most underrated guy that's not giving love? And I had over 100,000 people read that article in the Athletic. 100,000 people. 
but I gave them insight they're not getting anywhere else. Yeah, and I saw you just posted that on Twitter. Uh, the Athletic just uh, posted your piece on uh, off-season grades, all 30 teams. Kind of touch on that a little bit, what that entails. Yeah, so I do two. I do an interim uh, grades, which normally gets done right after the winter meetings, but because this year was such a disaster because of the pandemic, I just put it up over the weekend. Uh, and we'll do a final one um, right before, in the middle of February, just before, just as spring training gets underway. But what I do is I just look at every single move that every GM has made for all 30 teams and give them a grade. And, you know, it's sad because of the pandemic, and we're in a situation where Trevor Bauer hasn't signed, George Springer hasn't signed, JT Ramudo hasn't signed, Michael Brantley hasn't signed, Masahiro Tanaka hasn't signed. I mean, we've had a very slow winter because of the losses the teams have had. But it's a reminder for all 30 teams in the fan bases that this is where your team is. This is what they've done. So, for example, the White Sox, Padres, and Mets, they all got A's because they've dominated this offseason. They put themselves in position to get to the postseason. They've had great winners. It makes a difference. And then there's the St. Louis Cardinals that got an F. They've done nothing. Zip. You know, here's a team that I'll say right now, I think they're the team to beat in the NL Central because they can pitch and play defense. But they need two bats. What have they done? Nothing. So it's kind of an article where, for a fan base, you're reminded exactly all the moves, you know, waiver claims, Rule 5 draft, big trades, little trades, free agent signings. And I give you a grade, and then as a fan base and the, and the front office, they can kind of look and go, yeah, this is what we've done, and agree or disagree with my grades, I'm going to be in the ballpark of kind of what these teams have done. And then it gives everyone a chance to look over the next month of, okay, there's a lot of free agents out there. There's a lot of trades to be had. Here are the teams that need to do work, like the Boston Red Sox. And here are teams that, you know, if they want to sit on their fannies, at this point they can. Yeah, it's great. And for all you guys uh, listening out there on the Boom Podcast, follow Jim Bowden. He's he's really got some good stuff. I follow him, and I'm one of the smartest baseball people I know. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, last year and the 60 game. How'd you how you think that COVID season went? Uh, if I re- if I remove myself from the baseball side and just sit back as a fan, I thought Major League Baseball did a pretty good job. I think the way they laid out the the postseason uh, was smart by by backing those games up in the postseason instead of having an off day it made the the strongest teams come to the forefront uh the pitching deep teams and and i thought for under the conditions they did a good job what do you think and then i want to get to what you thought think of all the rules and if they're going to play those forward this year okay booney so i'm with you uh and i want to just first of all credit the players uh, because to only have the few issues we had with the Marlins and Cardinals and to not have more COVID-19 positive tests, it's a credit to the players who showed their self-discipline of not going out and not breaking protocols and making it work. It's amazing that the players would do that. Like, they didn't have a bubble like the NBA had. You know, they did it without a bubble with self-discipline, and they did overall a phenomenal job. Um, I think the sport did a really good job, too. Tony Clark, Rob Manford. Um, when the expanded playoffs was announced, it made sense. Truncated season. You're not going to get the true winner after 60 games. So let's put more teams in the playoffs. I liked it. My only concern was going to be, are the best teams going to get bumped because the first round's two out of three? I was worried about that, but it didn't play out that way. The better teams won. It worked. So I was a fan. So I guess from my perspective, 
I'm okay with expanded playoffs. I want more teams in a pennant race. I want mid-market teams, small-market teams to have a chance to win and get in. So I liked it. I, I think 16 was too many teams, but I'm okay with 14 teams getting in. Um, and I think it's a good idea. In terms of the other rules, you know, I'm usually I'm conservative and old school, but I got to tell you, I liked all the rules. I did. Seven inning doubleheaders, thank you very much. Why do I have to ruin my pitching staff with an 18 innings of doubleheader? Put a man at second. Uh, I watched it work in the World Baseball Classic. I know people hate it. I loved it. Uh, I hate because it. we don't have games past 13 innings anymore. Those games that go 16, 17, 18 innings, that go to four in the morning, and it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. In the regular season, come on. I mean, you got kids that have to go home in a 3-3 tie in the ninth inning because they can't stay for it. But, but now, when you put a man at second, game's going to end. And if it doesn't end in the 10th, it's going to end in the 11th or 12th. So it, you're not going to be there all night. So I thought that worked really well. The three-pitcher rule I didn't like as much as everybody else did. I mean, I guess from a broadcaster to not, to not watch the right-left thing, to, to not have to see Bochi and Leland run out there after every batter. Okay, I, I, but at the same time, I hated to take away the matchup strategy that the good managers have. So I didn't love that one. I could accept it, but I don't think it really did what it was supposed to do. I don't think it shaved much time off. Um, so, and then the universal DH is we have to go there. Like, look, I, I like the non-DH as much as everyone else. It was great during its time, but the time has passed. Nobody wants to see a pitcher hit. You know, we're sitting here in 2021. We need one rule for both leagues. You can't have two rules for interleague games and you get to the world series and David Ortiz can't play because he's sitting in a national league park where there's no DH. That's stupid. So we got to go to one rule and the universal DH has to be implemented. Disagree with you on the runner on second. I don't know. For some reason, the runner on second, uh, I, I can't get over it. I feel like I'm at a, a travel ball tournament, and there's another team waiting to get on the field. Uh, I get it. DH, I get it. I, 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 go I, ahead. I, I, and I don't want to see a tie, and but I don't, I don't want to see an 18-inning game in the regular season because people don't want to watch it. They just don't want to see it anymore. So I understand where you're coming from, and I yeah. had to adjust to it, but I do think it works. And I think that the DH, I mean – by doing this, it's just smart. You make a good point about the postseason and how home field advantage becomes a real home field advantage if it's if you're not the one with the DH and you haven't built your team around that. I also think for, for the good of the game and for the entertainment value, I, I think you mentioned David Ortiz, but with this being universal, you're never going to miss that opportunity as long as this game is played. You're never going to miss an Edgar Martinez's career. You're never going to miss a David Ortiz career where not having the universal DH, maybe we wouldn't see some of those great, great hitters that end up uh, being some of the greatest offensive players in our game. So so I'm definitely in agreement with you there. Jim, I just wanted to say thank you again for coming on. I think this has been some really good stuff. Interesting. Uh, it's always interesting when I talk to you. I think you bring a great perspective to it, and I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. What we do here at the end is uh, we bring in the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, and he's got a question for Mr. Bowden. All right. Well, what's going on, guys? Thank you so much for coming hey, on, Jim. Yeah. We appreciate it. Well, when it's Boone approved, I'm in. You know that. So I was going right. to say. What's the question you got? All right. The question is from Chris in Cincinnati. If there was one deal that you really wish you could take back in all your years of being a, a GM, which one would that be? Oh, that's easy. That's the first trade I made that I mentioned during this podcast. That was uh, Roberto <laughs> Kelly for Paul O'Neill. 
um, trusted our people. Uh, our people, unfortunately, there was some misevaluation that took place. I take full responsibility for it. I don't blame anyone. And when you sit in the GMC, you're the one that pulls the trigger. It's all on you. So I take full blame. If I had a redo, that's the deal. I'm definitely going to redo. Bonus question for you, just because you already answered that one before. Now that you're on the broadcasting side and you give a team an F for what they're doing in the offseason, do you ever hear from those other GMs? Do you ever get people that give oh, you a yeah. slack from it? Oh, for sure. You hear it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're a GM, you, you end up building up hard skin, you know, tough skin, because you're always going to have positive and negative feedback. But sure, you know, when, when my peers, who I ask to help me every day <laughs> to help produce my product and give me inside information, when I'm giving those people my, my lifeline, <laughs> right? I mean, those guys are my lifelines here. And then I give them an F, but I think they're professional enough to understand. You know, when John Mosaloc looks at it and says, uh, I didn't do anything in F. I think they understand. And as long as I'm fair and I back up my opinion with reasons, I, I, I think respect is there. They may not like it and they may give me a hard time about it. Um, but I think they also understand that I'm just trying to do my job and that is my job. All right. Well, Mr. Bonin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's a great pro- podcast. An honor to be on uh, with you and Booney. Thanks, Jimmy. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It is now time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. You ready to roll? I've been waiting all day. All right. Well, let's get to it. Brett, this one is from Mark in New Orleans. Would you ever run a marathon? Um, Man, you'd have to train for a marathon. Yeah, depending depending on the cause and, and if I was really down for it, uh, I wouldn't rule it out. Okie dokie. Let's ask you one more question, Brett. Which is harder to hit, a 400-foot bomb or a 300-foot smash straight down the fairway? That's from Phil in Phoenix. So 400-foot homer or a 300-yard drive down the middle? Yep. Oh, without a doubt, 300-yard drive. I mean, I got 18 holes to do it. I'm going to... You know, I'm going to do it several times. Hitting a homer is really hard. <laughs> I still don't understand how you understand where the pitch is going to go once it leaves a pitcher's hand. I have no Hit, idea. Hitting's really hard. Hitting a home run, it's just, I mean, hitting a ball, to, ripping a ball down the middle in the golf course, that's that's fun and that's a good feeling. But that's not even not even in the same stratosphere as, as hitting a home run. But how do you know when that ball's leaving someone's fingers that it's going to fall down or that's going to be a little off the plate? How do you see that? Um, I don't know. I don't think you really can explain it. It's what you do for a living. It's what you've trained for your whole life. Uh, I don't know. It would almost be like me asking a heart surgeon, how do you? How do you take that heart out, replace the valve, and put it back in there? Yeah, but, well, how, but what about really when that heart? Huh? I said, what about when that heart's coming at you at 100 miles an hour? How do you know which way it's going to go? Uh, it's, it's, you better have some some uh, quick thinking and, and fast hands. <laughs> now, like I said, we train for this our whole life. It's what we do for a living. And uh, just kind of a, it, it becomes instinctual. You train long enough, it becomes an instinctual thing that, that uh, just naturally takes over. You know, I don't have checkpoints where I go, okay, how am I going to hit this pitch? No, I line up, I get into my position, and uh, 
I let it fly when I, when I see what I see and I don't know how I do it. I just do it. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, but consistently to do it at the big league level uh, is why hitting still, you know, revered by many as, as the toughest thing to do in all sports. Let me add on to that question. Is this something that you lose over time or it's always there? Like if you were to go right now, and face off against a pitcher, would you still be able to see it like that, or would it take a little bit to get back to get that? Back? Oh, I would, I would see it. Well, my eyes aren't as good, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, everything would be the same. I would probably react to it the same. The only difference is, is I'm a little older now, and I don't think my fast twitch muscles are are <laughs> what they were, uh, you know, in my 20s and my 30s. So. My brain would be there and it would react like you're supposed to. But probably at this point, my my body wouldn't react uh, the way I wanted it to. And, and that's just an age thing. All right. Well, then let's head back into the mailbag for our final question. This one is from Buzz in Jacksonville. Brett, what's on your playlist for a long road trip? Well, let's go. Uh, playlist. Is this a uh, Baseball road trip or just a road trip? This would be Brett's getting in the I, car I, I and he's driving. I, I, I'm all over the map on my uh, on my music. I'm very diverse. Uh, when I was playing, Eminem was my favorite. But I love anywhere from Elton John to ACDC to uh, – I, 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 there's, there's no rhyme or reason. I love Fleetwood Mac. Leonard Skinnerd. Uh, so I, I'm all over the place. I don't have a, a set, a, a set style. Is that the right word? I yeah, don't have, you don't have a, a set list. You just you like to vary it up. No, there- yeah, I'm kind of, I kind of like everything. You know, I kind of I can get into everything. Yeah, I'm not, I don't like classical music. I'm not going to go there. I'm really not a country guy. I hate to say it. I really don't like country music and classic classical music, but everything else. I'm down for if it, if it, if it sounds, I, I love, I love Wiz Khalifa. Wow. <laughs> my kids say, well, my, my kids tell me, dad, that was like 10 years ago, but I loved it. It's a good jam. So, uh, I, I don't think I'm up to, to modern day 2021. What's hip. I usually ask my kids what's cool, but yeah, I, I, I've got a very diverse playlist. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone mailbag. Again, we want to thank all those who went ahead and tweeted those questions at the Boone 29. Also, Facebook and Instagram are other places you can shoot him an instant message and shoot him a question and send them on through. Once we get them, we will put them towards the podcast and we can let Brett tee off on them all day long. So thank you so much for uh, throwing those over. That's also going to do it for this podcast. We want to thank Jim Bowden and we want to thank Brett Boone for joining us on here on his own podcast. So thanks for coming on, Brett. This is great of you. Oh, you're welcome, Dan. (laughs) All right. For all those here that are listening in, we want to thank you again for subscribing, sharing, and reviewing, and telling all your friends that this is where the best conversation for baseball lies. It is here at the Brett Boone Podcast. We'll do it again next time. Thanks, everybody.